Undoubtedly, my focus as we think of this model text is toward the believer. Clearly, the text is speaking to those who know and love the Lord. And yet, of course, at the same time, it is my desire that those of you who do not know Christ will have a longing within your soul to know something of the experience of the believer. That as you hear what God has done for those in Christ Jesus, you yourself would be overcome with a longing that God would show you grace in the Savior. But yet, our attention does fall to the believer. And as a new year enters, we, we realize that as believers, we find ourselves in a degree of conflict. Every single child of God has a new heart given to them by Christ. It is the heart of the rebirth, the heart of the Old Testament, whereby through that heart we have a desire to walk in God's ways. It is our desire every day, not just in the new year. It is our desire by God's grace to be holy and to be faithful. That's a work that God has done in our lives. But that desire comes in conflict with the challenges we find in this world and, yes, in our own remaining sin. We find ourselves in conflict with present difficulties and future anxieties. We thought of those things last time. And so, whilst our heart desires to walk with God, we find that challenging and we find that difficult. Hence, it was my desire this year to begin the year with the encouragement of verse number 3. How do we live for God? How do we walk with God? How are we able to be faithful in a fallen world? Well, Dr. Lloyd-Jones answers this way. The answer is that everything we require is there for us. There is no excuse. There is no need for failure. All things, and that is all inclusive, you cannot add to it, all things that pertain unto life and godliness have already been given to us. There is no need for failure in our walk with God this year. That does not mean that at times we'll stumble and fall. We will. The fact that all things are given does not mean that we'll make use of all things that are given to us. And we may fall in the times of unbelief and fall in the times when we backslide away from our communion with God. But those things and those backslidings, they rest with us as to the cause. The cause of those things are within ourselves, not because God has withheld blessings from us. This text, it oozes, it overflows with God's grace. This has been difficult. The more I have dug, the more comes out. I was looking in the office there now with a, a book in our office on Second Peter that is probably this size, well, maybe not that size, but it's this size. And the more you dig into these verses, the more there is that comes out, and my desire is to finish this uh, today. So, by definition, I'm going to have to be summarizing some of these things. And really, I trust whetting your appetite that you'll dig further into the Word of God and see the glorious depths of these gospel truths. And so we began last time by thinking about the foundation of this promise, namely God's grace in saving. Uh, you'll see in your outline, then I've 
uh, put into the outline again the repetition of those points. We saw God's sovereign act of calling. We are called by God to glory and virtue. That's God's grace. We saw that man's response is to flee this world and the corruption that is in the world through lust, verse number 4. And we saw the outcome of God's grace and man's response in this beautiful fellowship that we have with God. We have the knowledge of God through Christ Jesus. We live in communion with God. And I said to you last time, that is the foundation for the promise and the assurance. God is sovereignly, eternally committed to his children. Therefore, he is committed to show grace in supplying our every need. So secondly, today, we think about God's grace in supplying. Verse 3 says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Just going to ask four simple questions of this particular statement. What does it mean? When? How? And why? So let's begin with the what. All things that pertain unto life and godliness. And here I absolutely am summarizing what this passage or this clause means. In essence, it means that God has given us everything we need to live for Him in 2023. Of course, every day, every year, I'm just using that for the fact that we're here on the second Lord's Day of a new year. But it is the comfort, it is the recognition that God has given us everything we need to live for God. The, the, the word life there, pertaining to life, that, that life is clearly referring to our spiritual life, the abundant life that Christ refers to in John's gospel, that those who know Christ, who is the truth, can walk in light and can know the life of God in their souls. Spiritual life. Well, we've no guarantee this year of continued physical life, but we have the assurance that God has given us everything we need for spiritual life. Godliness refers to our piety, our devotion. Godliness, as it's used by Paul and by Peter, senses or has the idea of a maturity of Christian experience. Uh, and nearness of our walk with God. Well, we sometimes use that old term, piety. Not being pious. You know the pious Christian, they're too good for anybody else. That, that sort of false piety. No, this is genuine spiritual devotion. It is, if, it is if you like, it is, it is the enjoyment of what we have in Christ Jesus. You'll see it in verse number 6. Uh, and here's why I say it has the thought of maturity. We're to add to knowledge temperance. Self-control. And the temperance, patience, or endurance, and to patience, godliness. It's this idea of, of building up our spiritual maturity. And part of that is to involve this attribute of godliness. I think ultimately we know what we're talking about here. We're not talking about someone who simply does all the right things but somebody who clearly manifests they walk with God. Enoch, a godly man. This idea of someone who's walking in closeness with God and has that godly demeanor is referring to our devotional life. It's referring to our closeness with God in prayer and in the Word. And then that comes out in our Christian testimony. Because in chapter 3, verse 11, it is drawn alongside the aspect of holiness. 
regarding the fact that this world will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation? That's the outward. All holy conversation. Godly, upright, walking according to the law of God and also godliness. The spirituality. This can be so misunderstood. I understand that. But it's really, in essence, a call to the life of faith and trust in God. A life whereby we know that God is our God and we're glad that God is our God and we know that God is our God every single hour of every single day, of every single month, of every single year. Devotion to God, piety, walking with the Lord, trusting God no matter our present or our future. God has given us all things that enable such a life to be lived. All things. All things. Everything. Not everything we may want, but everything we need to the ends implied life and godliness. But there are some particulars that we should give some consideration to. Let me just hint in different directions. Certainly God has given us faith. Faith. You see, verse number 3 doesn't begin the chapter, does it? It flows continually from verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith. Obtained it. Refers to something being taken or given. Something, if you like, that's not naturally inherently ours, but is now ours. Once we were unbelievers, now we believe. And so he's suggesting here that faith has been given to us. And you will not properly live for God without faith. Hebrews 11. Turn back quickly. Hebrews 11. I trust many of you will know the text, but it's good to see it again. And to remind yourselves of it. Hebrews 11, verse number 6. How important this faith is? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That's how important faith is. So if you're going to live a life spiritually and godlyly, then you must have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And so God has given us the gift of faith. Hebrews 2 verse 8. That grace you've been saved through faith, that the gift of God. Faith is not ours by nature. We are naturally unbelievers, naturally turned against God. But God graciously gives us the faith to believe all of His promises. This faith is vital. It's vital for us to persevere. Remember, you, you go on down through this. Uh, in fact, you read all of Second Peter, you see that people are struggling in a suffering time. It's a difficult time. And they're called to endure. The word patience is used there in verse number 6. In their self-control, they must also know patience or endurance and to patience godliness. Well, faith is vital for us to persevere. And we only persevere by faith. And we only persevere, I'm not trying to be clever here, we only persevere as our faith perseveres. And our faith perseveres Because God has given us that faith. The faith is not within ourselves. If the faith is within ourselves, it could easily fritter away and disappear. But the faith that is the gift of God is the faith that perseveres. See, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to tie these two beginnings of these books, 1 and 2 Peter, together. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Peter's referred and encouraged them that they've been born again to a lively hope, verse number three. They've got this inheritance, verse number four, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for them. And then look at verse four, five. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now we could say we are kept unto salvation by the power of God. But the means that God uses to keep us unto final salvation is the faith that He gives us. By His power, we believe. And by His power, we continue to believe. And we persevere in faith. No matter how difficult the road may be, our faith does not give up. At times, it's weak. Almost invisible. But for the child of God, their faith does not disappear and they persevere to the end by the power of God. And so verse number 5 of chapter 1 of the first epistle, kept by the power of God. Did you note how the second epistle reads? You've obtained like precious faith according as His divine power hath given us all things. And so surely at the very chief thing of all things, you have the concept that God has given us faith. The faith to start walking with God. And the faith that sustains our walk with God. Please be encouraged. In the very depths of our despair, we feel and fear that we're losing our grip on God. That is a reality for Christian experience. If you've never known that, God has been very gracious to you. But there are many believers in this very congregation will testify that they got to a point in a particular experience. And they were the point where they were questioning God so much. Why this? Why that? Why so long? How long, O oh God? And they find themselves like Asaph, I've kept my hands clean in vain. And faith is almost non-existent. But God comes. He's granted us a faith that persists and perseveres. And dear child of God, that is your expectation this year. You do not know what this afternoon will bring. But confidence that God will sustain your faith. He has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's also given us grace and peace. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you according as his divine power. And so he prays for them to know the experience of grace and peace as he writes in light of the fact that God has given all things. He's praying for a present experience of God's grace, a present experience of God's peace in the confident knowledge that God has given them all things that they need. Grace. Here, absolutely, I'm going to state this and move on. Grace in this context is not referring to the grace whereby we are saved. It's the grace that Paul knows in 2 Corinthians 12, in the thorn in the flesh, the grace that is sufficient, the grace that is Christ's strength. The promise of grace here is the strength to put one foot in front of the other, though you know human weakness. Even the youths grow weary, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they do so by the grace of God. Peace also is not referring to our peace that we know with God. We know that peace with God, and that doesn't change. We're reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. Here's the peace that God gives us, the peace of God, that settled spirit. 
Uh, this one really tests our faith, doesn't it? Because we find ourselves so overwhelmed with anxieties at times regarding the future. And we wonder what's going to happen next. How do we possibly know peace? Well, Peter prays that they would know peace. And the recognition that peace is a battle and a struggle. And so whilst you may wrestle with this and you may not know perpetual peace, there are times in the child of God's experience that, praise God, we do know this peace. No matter what's happening around us, though all the sea is in turmoil and the ship is being tossed up and down, Christ sleeps in the storm and by His grace He can grant us a similar peace in the storms of our lives. He's given us all things. Faith, grace, peace, the Scriptures. We need the Scriptures, don't we? The inspiration of the apostles to write the New Testament, we saw that in 2 Timothy. as a gift of God. And it is absolutely essential for us to know life and godliness. You will not know life and godliness without the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures reveal God to you, and they reveal Christ to you. They show you the guide and the way. They're the lamp and the light. They're the means whereby, you know, communion with God. You, you, don't, you don't fellowship with God as a God of your imagination. True fellowship is only with a God revealed in Scriptures. So therefore, Scripture is necessary. It's remarkable how many Christians think they can live a godly life without the Bible. Without the Bible. They presume that they're going to walk with God and know grace and peace. But the Bible is never touched. But God in His grace has given us the Scriptures. He's also given us fellow saints. He's given us the church. Necessary for life and godliness. That's why we're not to forsake the similar cells together in Hebrews chapter 10. The church is a means that God has given to encourage us in life and godliness. And the Christian living in isolation will struggle. But the Christian living in fellowship will know the gifts that Christ has given the church. Pastors, teachers, deacons, the gift of helps, the gifts of rebukes and exhortations. You see how difficult this was for me? <laughs> so many things. I, I want a sermon in this one, a sermon in that one. I'm just trying to overwhelm you with the thought, all things is wonderful. And of course, at the very top, we've thought about our faith but above that comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if ye then, being evil, know to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? All things that pertain to life and godliness. That's the what. What about the when? Well, we're told, hath given. God has secured these things. The past tense is used and. That's challenging, but I think it's easy enough to understand when you think it through carefully. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things, they are given to the church. Here I want to draw your attention back to verse number 1. If what I've sought to prove is true, that the precious faith is one of the gifts given to us, then we are told in verse number 1 that the precious faith is given to us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just a quick word regarding this particular phrase. 
God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the original, it carries the sense of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a proof text for the deity of Christ Jesus. Okay, just in case you think it's two different things. Our God and our Savior. One subject. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a proof text for Christ's deity. But leaving that aside, it's not our attention today. You will see what it says there. That we obtain like precious faith through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the difficulties with the, the Greek language is these prepositions and what they actually mean. This idea of through, or in, or by, and it allows for various meanings. But we have through, and I think through is very, very accurate and very helpful. It is through the righteousness of God and our Savior. I think of the order here. We ordinarily say that we have faith whereby we receive righteousness. This text is saying there is righteousness whereby we receive faith. At this point, I'm mindful of my old Scottish pastor friend who would say, are you with me? There's a distinction here. Some different here. We've got this idea in Romans that we receive righteousness when we believe. But here Peter is saying there is righteousness whereby we believe. Okay? Which is true. Both are true. But what's meant here by Peter? What's meant by the righteousness of God and Christ? What's meant by this term? Well, there there are two possibilities. It could be referring to the attribute of righteousness. We, We saw that in Jeremiah 9 today, God's a righteous God. He's a just God. He's upright in all of his ways. A God without iniquity, a righteous God. The attribute of righteousness, it could refer to that. Or it could well refer to the righteousness achieved by Christ in the gospel. Could well refer to that. My thought, and I believe this to be true, is that there's no choice to make. It's all of that together. The righteousness of Christ is the ground whereby we receive the gift of faith and the gift of all things. Christ's righteousness is the ground of that, and that is both his attributes and what is accomplished in the cross. Let me show you that. Go back to Romans, please. Let's borrow from Peter's friend Paul and back to Romans chapter 1. Because you'll see that even in Romans... The concept of the righteousness of God is used broadly and more narrowly. Broadly, God's attributes. More narrowly, the idea of a righteousness we receive in our justification. Romans 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel of which Paul is eager to preach, that gospel is our revelation of God's righteousness. But in what sense? In the attribute of righteousness? Or in the righteousness that Christ gives us when we come to believe the gospel? Which sense? Well, it reveals both. And Romans teaches that. You see, turn to Romans chapter 3. 
Romans 3, 26. You know the context is about Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God, which is by faith, unto all and upon all them that believe. There's the righteousness of God. Verse 21 even, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. But what's this righteousness? Well, it certainly is something we receive. But in verse number 26, it says this, to declare, to demonstrate, to manifest, to reveal his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So God in the gospel shows himself to be righteous as he justifies the unrighteous by a righteous application of the law whereby sin is punished and those who trust in Christ go free. Righteousness demonstrated God is not unrighteous in the gospel and yet also showing a righteousness that is given to us in the gospel. Chapter 4, verse number 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. God reckons righteousness to your account. Something as a body of righteousness that is given to us and covers all of our sins from view. And so chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Now, if you've been struggling for the last five minutes, let me bring you back with a very simple statement. Going back to 2 Peter, We could put it this way. Christ's work, which demonstrates God's righteousness and provides righteousness for us, Christ's work secures all things. The work of Christ secures all things, including our faith. The gift of faith that you have is secured because of the gospel. Christ's work In coming and living and dying and rising and ascending and interceding for us, Christ's work in its totality secures the gift of faith, provides faith for you today. You only believe because he died and rose again. That's the only reason you believe. He secures that for us. And with that faith comes everything else. Romans chapter 8 again. He's given us his son, spared not his own son, Delivered up for us all, so that with him we shall freely be given all things. The all things come with Christ. And so Peter is teaching the same thing here. We obtain faith through Christ's righteousness, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and therefore he's given us all things. So Christ's work secures everything. Hence, those who are justified those who receive Christ's righteousness, those who are accepted because of the righteousness of another, those who are justified will absolutely be sanctified and will absolutely be glorified. The all things unto life and godliness, those all things are guaranteed because every single person justified will be glorified. That's Romans 8, you know the text. That's the thought here. So you're justified. You come and you sing that. You thank the Lord for saving your soul. And yet you still wonder, well, perhaps I won't get to the end. Perhaps I'll be lost somewhere along the way. Perhaps my faith will fail. You know, oh yeah, God, God saved me and forgave my sins. But I'm, I'm, I'm so weak, I'll lose it. You are. Yes, you are. But God won't. He's given you all things. 
Christ's work secures our final salvation. His atonement leads to forgiveness, and His atonement will not fail. The outcome of the atonement is to bring a people unto Himself. And so Paul will say, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me use a simple illustration. And we sang it in one of our hymns today. This righteousness is the same as Christ being our good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He dies for the sheep. And the shepherd who dies for the sheep is a shepherd who goes and seeks the sheep that are lost. And when he finds the sheep that are lost, he does not say, just come along. He lifts those sheep and he puts the sheep upon his shoulders and carries the sheep all the way home because he's died for them. And he will not lose one of those sheep for whom he's died. That is your great confidence in the gospel today. The righteousness of God in the gospel secures the provision of everything you need in this new year. Everything you need has already been purchased by Christ. If you like, it's in God's heavenly storehouse awaiting your time of need. That's the when. What about the how? Well, here we'll be very quick. Through knowledge, we're told that, hath given us all things through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That knowledge referred to in verse number two, grace and peace, through the knowledge of God and our Savior, oh, sorry, our knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. This knowledge, relationship, we, we receive from God because of what we are to God. He does not provide for us as strangers, but as sons who are loved. This knowledge we thought last time is much more than knowing about God. It is that communion we have with God. You could look at 1 John chapter 1 in your own time and see the sense of which we have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have knowledge with God. We fellowship with God. And so the provision that we have given unto us comes in virtue of God's commitment to us. You know, parents of young children, they are so dependent, aren't they? Part of parenting is to raise your children to the point they're less dependent. But they're so young, they're so dependent. And yet, you know that you will not withhold anything they need. You may not give them they want, but the young baby, the young child, you will hold with nothing. You'll withhold from them nothing they need. Why? Because you're absolutely committed to their well-being. And God, our Heavenly Father, is infinitely more committed to His children than we are to our children. And He delights to give to us. How much more shall your Heavenly Father give? And so it comes to us in virtue of God's commitment to us, but also comes to us as we call unto God for all necessary grace. This knowledge is reciprocal. God knows us and we know God. It's, it's, it's that mutuality of relationship. And so he gives to us what he gives to us often in response to us asking for it. And so we're to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find grace to help in time of need. 
I've given a picture already of all things have been bought for us already by Christ and they are stored in God's heavenly storehouse and they are waiting for us to ask. I need grace in this time of need. And God says, you need this? It's already purchased for you. Here you go. And you have the grace that Christ has purchased for you in every single time of every single need without fail. He gives it. He's committed to us. And we ask for it. And he freely hears our cries. Why? The last question, why? Well, there are various terms used. That we live spiritually and a godly life. Life and godliness. You have the idea of being called to glory and virtue. This gift, this gift is to guarantee these outcomes. Life, godliness, glory, virtue. A successful, sanctified, spiritual life. You want that, don't you? That's what's guaranteed through Christ's provision for us. In essence, it is the guarantee of likeness to Christ. Verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. I wonder, I didn't look at the book in the library next door, but I wonder how many pages were given to this particular idea of being a partaker of the divine nature. It's not referring for a second that we become gods in some sense, like the cults falsely teach. God's essence is indivisible. We can't take a part of God and be given to us. Nor can, in any sense, we fellowship with God in adding to God's. There is one true and living God. The term, a partaker of the divine nature, is no less challenging than Paul telling the Galatians that it reveals in birth for them until Christ be formed in you. Same challenging concept. Or even the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The idea, of course, is not that we take on God's incommunicable attributes. The attributes that are distinct to God alone. He is omnipresent. We don't take that attribute. He is omniscient. We don't become all-knowing. That's not the thoughts at all. We don't take on God's incommunicable attributes. But we do take on those likenesses to Christ Jesus in the gospel. That is the outcome. Nisbet, the Scottish divine, says this, In some weak measure to resemble him in heavenly wisdom, holiness, uprightness, and other of his communicable properties, especially in humility, self-denial, love, and pity towards other miserable sinners, zeal the Lord's honor, and such other perfections as are eminent in the man Christ. That is to partake of the divine nature. It is to become more like Jesus. The bracelets, you know, the bands were made. What would Jesus do? That's a fearful, fearful thing to wear upon your wrist. And there were people who wore this. It became a fashion statement, didn't it? And they would wear this, and they'd find themselves perhaps in a dilemma, and they'd look upon the, the wrist. What would Jesus do? And they didn't understand, perhaps, maybe some did, that the only way they would do what Jesus did was by having the new heart and the new spirit and likeness to Christ formed in them through the word and the spirit 
working in them in the grace of God. But those who are saved, our life does become more and more like Christ. He does enable us to live a successful, godly life. That's God's grace in supplying. The young people have noticed undoubtedly that the third point was the very bottom of the page. And there's no space beneath it. Now their time is gone, I knew it would be. So what is God's grace in supporting these promises? Securing the promises? Well, verse number four. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Where do you start? So many. I didn't begin to summarize these exceeding great and precious promises. But the promises, they are the securing. That they're, like, they're like God's evidence for what he just said. He's given us all things. And by the way, there are so many promises that will enable you to believe what he just said. Peter says what he says because God has given promises to that end all the way through the Bible. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promises, I will be their God and they shall all know me, their sins and iniquities will they remember no more, the law upon their hearts. Isaiah 53, Christ shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. These promises are exceedingly great and precious because of their source. They come from God with whom we were at enmity. And yet in His grace, He's given these promises to sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, God has given us these promises. Promises. The source, the security of these promises, they're oath-bound. God could swear by no greater he swore by himself. Surely I'll bless thee, Hebrews chapter 6. These are oath-bound promises. They're blood-bought promises. That's why they're so exceedingly great and precious. Christ's blood has secured these promises. Precious blood. Precious promises. And so God's name secures our hope and our confidence. They're exceeding great and precious because of the scope of these promises. And I want to close this message today by reading some promises from God's Word. If you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to do so. Turn your Bibles back, please, to Matthew chapter 5. You see, as you think of the promises of God that are exceeding great and precious, they are promises that encourage you that you shall indeed receive all things you need in this year. Matthew 5, verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Exceeding great and precious promises. And whilst many of these beatitudes and promises are realized in part now, 
they ultimately all have their fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth that is yet to come. And so these promises are enjoyed in part now, but they are the promises that guarantee our enjoyment of them forever and forever. Those who are blessed are those who are justified, and those who are justified are those who are glorified. And so, the pure in heart shall see God and be like Him, ultimately made a partaker of the divine nature. The Bible fits together so beautifully, doesn't it? It all comes together in unified form. And we as God's people have the simple task of believing what God said, remembering that we only believe because Christ's righteousness secures that faith. It's all of God, all of grace, and to God be all the glory. Live in confidence, please. Don't live in despair. Don't live in doubt. Live in the confidence of God's abiding, continuing grace. His grace has led me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for the ability just to take some time to think through these wonderful gospel truths. Thank you that Christ's work on our behalf has secured us all of these blessings. Forgive us, O Lord, for the times we succumb to unbelief. And I pray, O God, for some in this gathering, and they they don't understand these things. They don't don't know the blessings that are for them in Christ Jesus. Cause, dear Father, some, some soul today to seek Christ, to turn away from the emptiness of this world that is under corruption through lust, to flee from this world and to find refuge in Christ Jesus. So bless those who know you, save those who don't, and may together our entire company Look forward to the prospect of singing with the saints in glory. Oh, God bless our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.